began a, a Bible study. And it is a Bible study that is designed to be taught to people. It's, it's really not designed to be taught in church. It's, it's not for the pastor, if you will. It's designed for the saint to find someone and reach someone and, and then get a, a, uh, a consistent, hopefully weekly Bible study set up and, and it, you know, it really it takes about an hour, no more than an hour and a half. If you're going longer than that, you're probably talking too much or they're asking too many questions that are kind of bogging it down. And so uh, there's, there's times that you have to realize, you try to keep it between an hour and an hour and a half, it's easy. Um, and, and so I felt impressed, especially after the, the, what we're seeing in the lighthouse. We are seeing uh, new souls coming in. We're seeing hungry souls coming. Souls that have, have questions. They're, they're not wanting to debate. They're genuinely desiring to know what the Bible says. And so I felt impressed to teach this Exploring God's Word uh, over the course of, of a couple months on Wednesday nights. And uh, I'm uh, have got in the works even bringing some other teachers in because uh, Bible studies do not have to be taught by the same person every lesson. In fact, I would highly recommend that two people go together to teach a home Bible study and that way if somebody is sick or can't be there or, or whatever, you've got someone else that can teach it. And so in a couple weeks, Brother Perryman is going to come and, and, and maybe other teachers that we have set up uh, just to show you that it doesn't take the pastor to teach this lesson. In fact, before we're over, you're going to find that it doesn't take the pastor or the assistant pastor to teach this lesson. You're going to hear from some other people that, that can teach it that uh, might surprise you a little bit. And I'm kind of excited about that as well. And uh, so I'm doing this lesson twofold, uh, or this series twofold. Number one, I believe it helps all of us to have a, a, a grounding in the truth, kind of a a, a Go over it again. And when you start in Genesis and go to Revelation, it just helps ground us. So I believe all of us will benefit from what is going to be taught. And the second thing that I want to happen is I want you to see that you can teach this. And I'm, I'm going to be honest. You hear me talk. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to say that is written uh, close to word for word here in, in, uh, in the manual, the teacher's manual. Uh, obviously, I'm going to add to it. I'm gonna, I've got markings all in mind. I circle things I want to remember. That's just how I do it. I put notes on the side, and when you get it, you're going to do the same there. And uh, I, I, I want you to realize you can teach it. You don't have to have a theology degree in the Word of God to teach a home Bible study. It's here. If you can read and if you can talk, you can teach a home Bible study. And if you can't read, then we'll help you memorize it, and then you can do it that way as well. So there's really no, uh, no reason you can't do it. Last week we began it. There was a little bit of, of, of uh, opening, uh, just kind of get us acquainted with the Old Testament. And then we did uh, the garden and the fall and the consequences and the promise that was there. And today, lesson two, we're going to take you from the, the time of the fall to the flood. And then we're going to also talk a little bit about some things that are very apt today that have to deal with the flood. Hallelujah. Let, let's see how many of you, how many of you were here last Wednesday? Let's raise your hands. How many were here last Wednesday? Let me ask you, and I need you to raise your hand, and I'll call on you, and we'll see if you can do it. How many of you remember what the secret is to remembering how many books are in the Old Testament? All right, Sister uh, Cozart. Oh, 
Old has, yeah, Old has three. Right, Old has three. The, the word Old, Old Testament, the word Old has three letters. The word Testament has nine letters. You put those together, you get 39. So see, there you go. That way you can always remember. And uh, those are how, that's how I do it. I mean, how many of you know the colors of the rainbow? Anybody remember what that little acronym is? RGB, help me out, RGBBIV, BIV, RGVBIV. Uh, I didn't get there. I have, to, I have to say it several times. So those cool things come in handy. And those are fun. Uh, not every lesson will do it, but those are fun to open up uh, Bible studies because people want to know those things. As important as Acts 2.38 is, as important as Deuteronomy 6.4 is, everything about the Word of God is important. And even those little seemingly insignificant things will make a difference in the lives of people. But let's get into it. Adam and Eve was kicked out of the garden. This is the first part. So let's talk a little bit about what happened after the fall. Adam and Eve is kicked out of the garden and they begin their life. And that's really the key, beginning. When they were, when, when they were kicked out of the garden... They no longer had access to the tree of life. They no longer had access to everlasting life. There, if you will, the time they left the garden and the angel was positioned, their biological clock started ticking. Does that make sense? Now, Adam and Eve lived for a long time. Later on, and I don't know if we get into it in here, but there was a place where God says, you know, I'm not going to let man live as long as I let some of them live. And, and as you go through life and history, you'll find that it seems as if the life expectancy kind of got shorter and shorter. Now with modern medicine, we can creep it back up again. But really, uh, the biological clock of humanity started when they were kicked out of garden. Can you imagine how different their existence must have been? Their existence in the garden, although there was some work to do, God called them to keep the garden, but it was a place of paradise. It really didn't require a lot of upkeep. You just had to kind of be there. But now they are hewing a living by the sweat of the brow. Adam is having to fight an unending battle against weeds and briars. And Eve is discovering that God, when he says it, it happens. And now she is having children. And the first child that she brings into the world is a son. And it was in sorrow that she brought it. It was painful. It was not an experience that she probably enjoyed in a sense. But she realized that this was from the Lord. And she called his name Cain. At some point, the Bible doesn't say, at some point later, she had another son whom she named Abel. Those two were vastly different boys. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a farmer, a tiller of the ground. But the Bible also states in the book of Genesis chapter 4 that there were spiritual differences between those two men. Perhaps un spoken in the word of God but yet implied is the fact that somehow Adam and Eve had to have taught their children the importance of worshiping the, 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 the God that was there. And so because of that they felt uh, compelled, if you will, to offer a sacrifice. The Bible says when the process of time came, or basically as time passed, Adam, or rather Cain and Abel, they brought a sacrifice to the Lord. The Bible indicates that Cain brought a sacrifice of, of stuff that he had grown and fruit that he had harvested. But Abel had brought from the offering a, a firstborn of his now, I will tell you just from, from pastor to saint, and you're going to teach this, I don't really know, there's a lot of reasons that I can surmise or perhaps assume 
why the things happen in the Word of God. But at the end of the day, we may never know why God accepted Abel's offering of an animal and did not accept Cain's offering of fruit or vegetable. Now, it is a very easy assumption to say, well, it's because God was showing them that, that a sacrifice required an innocent life to be lost. And I believe that that type and that shadow is all throughout the Scripture. But be careful that you don't leave it right there because when you get into Deuteronomy and you get into Leviticus, you will find that there were other sacrifices that were allowed that offered grain and, and, and you know, the first fruits of, of your, your orchard or your vineyard. And so we have to be very careful we don't put something in a box because later the person you're teaching may ask you about that. That makes sense? So, but here's the thing. This is where you need to catch on to this. When God accepted Abel's offering, the Bible says that Cain got mad. And I could tell you, let me, let me just stop it right here and just say this. How you respond to the correction of God is vitally important. How you respond to the word of God is vitally important. When God spoke to, to God saw Cain and, and he said, why are you wroth? Why are you mad? Why is your countenance fallen? Why are you moping about? Why are you grumbling? Why are your, you know, your, your brows furrowed? Is it not, or rather, if you do well, Shall you not be accepted? If you don't do well, then sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. See, here's what's so amazing about God. See, there's a lot of people that says God is, is a mean God. God is a, a, a wroth God. I mean, look at it. He, he, he just, he's always doing this. But you saw the mercy of God to Adam and Eve when they sinned. God could have wiped them off the face of the earth. God could have thrown them out, left his spirit, but instead God was with them. Now, God loves Cain so much that even when Cain does something that displeases God, God is willing to give him a second chance. If you will, God is saying, Cain, why don't you just try it again? Whatever it was that Cain did wrong, just try it again. But, Cain didn't do it. See, I, I want to just tell you this, and, and this is in the, 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 the book the, that you're going to see. And that is very, very early in Scripture, we see that sincerity alone does not put a person in right standing with God. Do you recall what the prophet Samuel said to King Saul? He said, obedience is better than sacrifice. Let's put all of this together, okay? So you've got, you've got the story of Cain in Genesis. You've got the story of, of Saul, which is in 1 Samuel. But let's go all the way to the book of, of Acts, Acts chapter 10. The Bible says of a man named Cornelius that Cornelius was a devout man who prayed often and paid his tithes and gave to the poor. But he was still lost. This is where you can tell anyone you ever come in contact with, just because you're sincere, just because you're a good person, does not mean you're saved. You have to obey the word of God. Now, we haven't even got to the, what the word says about salvation yet. That comes in later chapters. But you are already preparing the ground for when you get to that place. This is what God says about being saved. 
Remember, sincerity alone does not put a person in right standing with God. The only thing that God will honor is obedient faith. And it's not enough it's, it, to, to, to say, well, what I think is right or what I think is wrong, you have to obey what God commands. And this is followed up by the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. And so even then it tells us somewhere, I don't know why, I don't know how, I don't know exactly what Cain did wrong and Abel did right, but Abel obeyed God. Cain did not accept God's offer to try again, Instead, you find Cain going out into the field and getting mad, picking up a rock and bashing uh, Abel's head in. By the way, let me get political for a moment. You can ban all the guns you want to ban. You can ban all the knives you want to ban. If there was a magical word you could speak and every gun in the entire world would instantly disappear, we'd still find ways to kill each other. Because it's not a gun problem, it's not a knife problem, it's not a political problem, it's a sin problem that existed all the way back in the beginning. And so it was that Cain bashes his brother's head in, buries him in the ground perhaps, and says, well, no one will ever know. I mean, you only got this huge, gigantic world, and at this point, all we know is there's four people living on it. There's probably more, because Adam and Eve had a lot of children, ones that we don't even know of. But God saw. And just as God walked in the garden and found Adam and Eve cowering under their own clothes that they made of fig leaves, God found Cain out in the field and he said to Cain, he says, hey Cain, where is Abel thy brother? Now Cain really couldn't pin it on anybody. So Cain just says, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not his babysitter. And God says, well what you've done Listen, the voice of your brother's blood crieth out unto me from the ground, and your curse from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. And when you till the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength, and you will be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. God said, I'm going to punish you. You used to be an incredible farmer. You had to work for it, but you were a great farmer. Now not even that is going to, going to do it. You're going to be a fugitive. And Cain he replies, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You've driven me out from this day from the face of the earth, and from the, thy face shall I be hid. I'll be a fugitive and vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that finds me is going to kill me. And again, the mercy of God is shown. The Lord said, whosoever will kill Cain, vengeance will be on that person sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain to prevent anyone who found him from killing him. I don't know what that mark is. Don't go into useless debates about that. We have no idea what that is. But the point is this. Even when Cain sinned, God had mercy. But the result of Cain's sin of murder and refusal to obey was Cain left the presence of God and went to live in the lonely land of Nod, east of Eden. Now I want to show you one thing according to that scripture that's so very important. Watch what Cain said. My punishment is greater than I can bear because you have driven me out. That's not what happened. It is not God that pushed Cain out. It was Cain's sin that separated him from God. There is, the Bible, you know, we know this. There, 
God can't lie and God's word doesn't make mistakes. And the word of God says that the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. Look at your neighbor and say that. Say the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Can I tell you what Brandon Buford's version of that means? Let me break that down. Let me exegete it for you. God doesn't leave. God doesn't move. You don't lose the presence of God. God doesn't walk away from you when you sin. God doesn't throw you away when you sin. But what happens is our sin leads us away from God. And that is very key. I know it may sound like a matter of semantics, but that's very key. Cain left the presence of God. Adam and Eve had more children. They populated the earth. But it wasn't until she gave birth to a son named Seth that Eve said this, For God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom whom Cain slew. And the Bible says in in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26 that it was during the days of Seth that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Evidently, it was during that time that that worship became a little bit more of a corporate event. Worship became a little bit more of a a, a something they, they kind of made sure they did. They worshiped, they called upon the name of the Lord. There's another interesting man in the Bible. His name was Enoch, Genesis chapter 5. He loved God and was obedient to him. In fact, the Bible says Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 kind of explains that a little bit better. It says that by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. Meaning that it was the way that he walked with God. It was the testimony. It was the righteousness that he walked in. Again, not that he was... uh, You know, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But somewhere, Enoch had impressed the Lord. And the Lord just kind of picked him up and brought him to his side. Because even in the very early dawn of history, there were people who pleased God because of their obedience and faith in Him. And if you will have faith, and if you will have obedience to God's Word, you will be saved. Because if you have faith... You're going to want to hear what God has to say. And if you have obedience, you're going to do what God says. But not everybody saw it like that. In the days of Enoch, he had a great-grandson by the name of Noah. And during that time, God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And this is what the Bible says, that every imagination of the thoughts of their heart was on evil continually. They were wicked, they were lawless, and God grieved. He was so upset, if you will, that he made them. Not that he was going to change what happened, but you have to imagine it was, it was, it was as if, a, you know, those of you that have experienced uh, sons or daughters that have backslidden or walked away or left you, you know how it feels like. And that's what it was with God. He said, I, I'm done, I'm going to destroy the man whom I've created from the face of the earth, man and beast and every creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But there was one man that found grace in the eyes of God. His name was Noah, and while others were continually thinking about evil things, while others were doing every wicked practice they could think of, there was one man, Noah, that believed God and obeyed God. 
Again, let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, that, that incredible faith chapter, the hall of faith or the heroes of faith. It says this in verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, was moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is by faith. See, here's what Abel and Seth and Enoch and Noah had in common. Obedient faith. They had faith in God. And so they wanted to hear what God had to say, and they obeyed what God said. Because from the very beginning of time, faith has been God's requirement. And Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And so because Noah had faith in God, and because Noah obeyed God, God allowed there to be a way of escape. God gave Noah very specific instructions on how to build the ark. It could only be made of one type of wood. It could only be one size, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Now I forgot to write this down in my notes here. I've got it other places, but if you're going to teach it, just go to Google and just type in how long was Noah's ark and put it into places we understand. Put it in feet and yards and meters or whatever it is. It just kind of makes it a little bit more interesting to see because I don't know about you, I have no, I don't talk about cubits and, and things of that nature. The Lord even told Noah how many animals to bring in the ark. God told them you're, you're going to bring two of, of each kind of animal. That's important and I'm get off uh, track for a moment, two of every kind of animal, and then I want you to bring some extra clean beasts by seven so you have some food to feed the animals. You can, you know, you got to have some extra uh, meat to feed the lions and probably your own family, and you can see that. By the way, let me just tell you, if you, if you ever get a chance to go, if you'll go to um, Kentucky, I forget exactly where it is, but it's right under, not very far, only like about, about less than an hour south of, uh, of Cincinnati. Ohio, there is the Creation Museum down there. Not very far from the Creation Museum, they have built the Ark Experience, and it is a life-size replica of the Ark, and it is so cool. My, my family's been, Zane was probably too young to remember it, uh, and Zoe for sure was too young to remember it, but I want to go back because it, it kind of explained how all the animals could have fit on the Ark. He didn't take one of every type of dog. There's a, seems like a thousand different breeds of dogs. He just, the Bible said, take one of every kind. So he took one kind of canine, he took one kind of bovine, he took one kind of this and that. But what if Noah, like Cain, would have said, as Frank Sinatra said, I'm going to do it my way. What if he'd have added another window? What if he'd have made it out of a different wood? What if he would have made the, 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 the dimensions of the ark different? What if he wouldn't have brought everything around it? I'll tell you what would have happened. If he would have disobeyed God's word, he and his family would have perished just like the rest of the world. And so it was that Noah began to preach. No one listened. No one followed, but he preached as best he could. He preached, you've got to repent. You've got to obey God. You've got to get into the ark. You've got to come into a place of safety. But that message went unheeded. But God was long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And so he allowed there to be years upon years and decades upon decades that it took Moses to build that ark. Hebrews chapter 11 said that by faith Noah being warned of God of things not yet seen moved with fear prepared an ark to the saving of his house. 
One week before the flood, God led Noah and his family into the ark, directed the animals in, and he shut the door of the ark. Noah was 600 years old. It seems like for uh, seven days, nothing really happened. But they were there. But finally, on that seventh day, the rain fell, and the fountains of the deep were broken up, and the waters that were above the firmament we talked last week came cascading down, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Water continued to cover the mountains for it seems 110 more days. 150 days went by until that ark rested on top of Mount Ariat. After 40 days of waiting, nothing moving, you know, just kind of hung up on that mountain, God opened the window and he set out a raven and a dove and there was no place for it to land and they returned and seven days went by and Noah put out another dove and it came uh, with an olive leaf in his mouth. Finally, meaning something was growing, another seven days go by, he lets the dove go again and it never returns, symbolizing it found some dry land to leave. After one year and 17 days, God told Noah that they could leave the ark. And the first thing that Noah did when he left that ark, he built a sacrifice. The Lord said, I'm never going to curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from thy youth. Neither will I again smite any more living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and winter and day and night shall not cease. But this was not the end of what God had in store for Noah. Just as he told Adam and Eve, he told Noah, he said, I need you to go and I need you to establish mankind on this earth. I'm going to establish my covenant with you, with your seed after you and every living creature that is with you, fowl and cattle, every beast of the field. Go out from the ark, every beast of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall flesh be cut off anymore from the waters of the flood. Neither shall there be any more flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I have made between me and you and every living creature that is for perpetual generations. I will set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. I'm going to just tell you right now. Regardless of whoever wants to hijack that covenant, whoever wants to hijack the rainbow, whoever wants to say this is that. The rainbow remains to be seen for one thing alone. The grace and the mercy of God, but also a promise that one day God will destroy the earth, not by water, but by fire. Anybody seen a rainbow lately? I I think it was Zane. We were driving, it was raining. Maybe Zoe, and I caught her. She's looking around. She's trying to find the rainbow. It's God's token of that covenant. But 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 4 says that in the last days scoffers will come. People who say where is the promise of God's coming? For since our fathers fell asleep, since our our ancestors died, all things are still happening as they have from the beginning of creation. I mean my grandpa, my grandmother, they told me as a kid God's coming back soon. People before them said God's coming back soon. Peter said God was coming back soon. Jesus said I'm coming back soon. But some will look at the passage of time and say, well, since it hasn't happened, it probably is not going to happen. But God said this in his word, 2 Peter chapter 3, but this they are willingly ignorant of, 
that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was then being overflowed with water, a flood, perished, but the heavens and the earth are now by the same word of God kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And Peter also says that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm going to tell you right now, the only reason God has not yet come back is because he says there's still one more person that I'm reaching for. Judgment is coming. It's not going to be water. It'll be a fire. And so it is that you and I need to have that same responsibility that Noah had. Brother Mike, can you put Bible verses up there or are we in the wrong program? If you can put a Bible verse up there, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 24. And as we go to Matthew chapter 24, I want you to to pay close attention because this is where you're going to tie something that happened thousands of years ago that people look as just kind of a story. Let's tie it into what's happening now. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 37, it says this, But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, and one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you know not the hour your Lord doth come. But know this, if the goodman of the house had known what, in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would have not suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Let me just remind you today, let me remind those you're going to teach this to, there is coming a judgment. There is coming a day just like Noah when the world is going to pass away and God's going to call us home for judgment. The Bible says that in the days of Noah they were eating and drinking. Those are those normal pursuits of life and and it's okay. I mean, sure, you can take both of those too far. You can do things wrong, but that's not necessarily what it's talking about. It was saying that people were just going about their normal lives. They had heard the warning of Noah until their ears had grew dull and they no longer wanted to hear what Noah had to say. And they could tune out the preacher. They could tune out God's word. And they just continued to do whatever they could do. They were marrying and giving in marriage. It was ordained of God. Nothing wrong necessarily there. But they just kind of didn't care about what was happening. They bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. Again, nothing sinful about that. But the Bible says every imagination of the thoughts of their heart was on evil continually. And I think that's where we are today. Every time you turn on the news, every time you watch something, every time you talk about it, it just astounds me. Uh, Another verse in the Bible says that in the last days people will invent bad, evil things to do. About the time you think you've seen just the ultimate depth of human immorality, we invent more ways to do it. Invent more ways to be evil. Invent more ways to sin. And that's where we are today. Life going on as usual. The human race engaged in its normal pursuits. But listen to me carefully. 
the day the flood happened was like any other day. I know just a couple weeks ago, a guy had been prophesying that a big old asteroid was going to hit the earth and he could tell us exactly when the day was going to end. Interestingly enough, the night before it happened, he changed the story and said, I don't think it's going to happen that way. Listen to me very carefully. We are not going to know when he is coming. You can even look in Revelation and see some things that are happening, but even if some of these prophetic instances happen, you're still not going to know when he's coming. If anybody looks at you and tells you they can tell you when he's coming, they're lying. It was just a normal day. And they were going on with life as they were. They knew not, Bible says, Matthew 24, 39, they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. I'm telling you today, there is coming a judgment. And that same parallel, or that parallel of the same wickedness between Noah's day and our generation is shown. And while there's not going to be a warning, it's going to be just one day God says, I've had enough. And judgment will come. I know Noah, he was, he was strange. Laboring for years to build a gigantic boat. I'm sure they had some sort of boats to float on whatever little water they, they were a part of. But no one had ever seen an ocean liner. Oh, he was made fun of. They ridiculed him, they mocked him, they laughed him to scorn. Even his family probably took it out on him every now and then. But when Noah came, I'm sorry, when the flood came, Noah who was in the ark, one of the most tragic scriptures I know of, I'm convinced Noah had to listen to the beating on the outside, saying, saying, I'm ready to listen to you now. I'm ready to listen to you now. And I don't know exactly how God's going to end this world. There's a lot of speculation, but... If you'll let me use my imagination, I kind of have this feeling, Brother Peters, that the day after God comes, every church in America will be full to the brim. I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to believe. But they suffered. So will the return of the Lord be. Those who have not listened to God's word, those who haven't, have resisted God's pull and draw in them, those who have rejected those opportunities to serve Him are going to finally receive not mercy and grace. Up until then, you have mercy and grace available to you. But at that moment, there will be no more mercy. There will be no more grace. They will receive only condemnation, sorrow, and pain. But those who listened, those who, were, who had faith in God, those who obeyed the word of God, well, they're going to be ushered into everlasting joy because this is what Jesus said. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Why don't we stand? Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him 
Also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Let me say that there, there, there's, that, that's in the Gospels, and so there's, there's multiple recordings of that. Another, one, another verse says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? But then there's another question asked after that, Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Both of those are rhetorical negative questions, if you will. Zane, the first one says, What does it matter if you have all the money in the world? What does it matter if you, if you have the, the, the best family and the best job and all of the toys? What does it matter if you gain the whole world, but at the end of the day, you lose your soul? But another question, Bob, is this. What would you be willing to exchange your soul for? Everything has a price, they say. And there are some that are willing to look at their soul and say, I'm willing as, 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 and, and this is another lesson. I'm, I'm going to get off on it, but i got to do it. There are some that will say, as Esau said, I'll sell my promise for a bowl of soup. I know you're not, I know you're not supposed to tell people you're fasting, okay, you know, because that kind of defeats it. But today's my fast day. I'm kind of hungry. I'm kind of pert and I famished. As you can see, I'm wasting away. I will not make it tonight. But what would it, I mean, can, can you imagine, this is Esau. I'm Esau. I'm hungry. I'm, I'm starving. I'm waiting till I can eat some food. Can you imagine one that says, I'm willing to give up the promise of my life so that I can go, I can go eat a McDonald's, you know, Big Mac. And in the moment, it tastes awesome. But in 30 minutes, I'll be hungry again. Because the pleasures of sin are but for a season. As the, coming, as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. All I can tell you, be ready. And the only way that you can be ready is to ask this question. What must I do to be saved? I feel like I'm talking to somebody that's in this building right now. But for those of you that maybe I'm not, this is a great way to pull it together. If somebody would approach Noah, Brother Steve, and said, Noah, I've been listening to what you've had to say. I'm kind of convinced that you might be right. What must I do to be saved? What do you think Noah would have said? Get on the boat. Why do you say get on the boat? Because God told me to say it. Because that's what God told me. If somebody would have said, what must I do to be saved, Noah? He'd have said, obey the word of God. Get on the boat. On the day of Pentecost when Peter preached, he preached a message a lot like Noah did. At the end of that, someone said, hey, Peter, what must I do to be saved? Acts 2.38, then Peter said unto them, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. I'm telling you, here's what it means to be saved. You've got to believe that He's God, and you've got to believe His Word. Faith and obedience is the key from Adam and Eve until the time that He blows that trumpet and He calls us home. 
I think we ought to just lift our hands for a moment, maybe sing for just a second. But I want to just stay right here in this moment. I feel the presence of God, and I believe if you ever teach this, you're going to feel that same presence in the name of Jesus. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed by you. I want to believe. I want to obey. Because I realize it's true. 